You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Tom Hart. Tom is the cartoonist behind Hutch Owen, uh, Sand, a um, whole bunch of different stuff. I'm not going to list off everything. Uh, most importantly is the book he's working on, uh, Rosalie Lightning, um, about his daughter, as well as um, the very active uh, Sequential Artist Workshop, which... Um, has Dash Shaw hanging out there right now, and I think everyone would be excited to hang out with Dot with Dash. Um, thank you for joining me today, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was thinking about your work and kind of going through the stuff, and it's really interesting. Like, you kind of touch on, or have been like part of so many kind of important alternative comics points. Um, you're really like, maybe we should just start right at the beginning and talk about like what drove you into comics, um, and being part of that mini comic scene in the early nineties. Well, um, I never wanted to do anything else. So it was pretty much, it was pretty much a given that I would do comics. Um, you know, I, I mean, I was, I grew up on on Charles Schultz and Peanuts, and, and until I was 22, I probably didn't really have many more um, influences except Charles Schultz and Peanuts. <laughs> Maybe Mad Magazine, and this is true. Maybe not 22, I don't know, but pretty old. I, you know, I was very, I was pretty sheltered. Um, and it was the only thing I wanted to do. Peanuts spoke so much to me, and, and other comic strips, and, and true, Mad Magazine. So, what happened was I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City, which was the only place that I knew about that you could study comics. And I was at least smart enough to know that Harvey Kurtzman taught there. And um, I think Spiegelman had maybe just cycled out of teaching there at the time. But Will Eisner was still teaching there. And these were names I knew, and I knew their work, and I was excited by. Um, and it was the only place I ever wanted to go, and it was super expensive. Um, but it had those people, and those are the people I wanted to learn from. Um, and so I went for a year, and it was kind of awful. Um, partially because the um, the base year, the sort of foundation year, is 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 very focused on um, a sort of fine art, visual fine arts background, mm -hmm. which I can respect. But at the time, I wasn't very capable of, of adhering to, and there was no touch touching upon comics or or but more importantly, narrative and story um, at all. But way more important, way more important is the fact that everybody 
I would, or 90% of the kids of, of, the, of the college students in the comics department were utter boneheads. Utter, complete boneheads. <laughs> there was no way I was going to continue for three more years being surrounded by these kids. Um, this would be 1987 or 8 right now. So, and it was mostly guys you know, from Long Island who just basically drew the Hulk and Spider-Man in the margins of their notebooks. You know, very dirty... It, when they could get away with it, dirty drawings of them, you know, doing Wonder Woman or whatever. And I was like, no way am I going to do, no way can I be here for three more years. Um, and if Harvey Kurtzman maybe was in better health, I might have stuck it out for another year, but he was in pretty bad health and he wasn't really teaching very much. And his um, his assistant, Sarah Downs, was teaching and, and she was great. I glommed on as much as I could. I, I, I took as much away as I could as a first year student. Um, and then I dropped out and moved to Seattle. Where's where there Sorry, go ahead. Was there that many um, alternative cartoons there at that time? Like, I think Bob Fingerman probably went before you were there, I'm figuring. For, yeah, for sure Fingerman went before me three or four years, and Peter Bagg would have dropped out also around 1982, maybe? Yeah. So years prior. Um, at that point, it's possible that Mark Newgarden actually had taught there for a year or two. Um, but I don't think he was teaching at the time. Um, Catcher, as far as I know, Catcher sort of came and went, um, and I think he might have taught a year or two. And for sure, I'm pretty sure um, uh, Jerry Moriarty might have still been teaching, but he's in the fine arts department anyway. And, and yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, there were there were outliers, but, but as far as... Um, it was more like expected to be doing like Taking Carmine Infantino's class. I'm For sure. And, I wound yeah. up taking Carmine's class. I mean, I'm sorry. Let me let me rephrase that so I'm clear. I wound up replacing Carmine as a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Which is unfair. I mean, Carmine, Carmine is a great, great um, uh, talent and had a lot to offer. But, but he, in, in his... You know, at some point, uh, Tom Woodruff, this is getting... This is flash forwarding to 2002 or three or something, but but um, the uh, head of the cartooning and illustration department left, and then was replaced by a guy with a, a, a much broader vision and a real interest in, in pushing things into the future because it had been really stagnating, I think. Um, and this guy's name was Tom Woodruff, a great guy, and um, and he wanted people who thought like he wanted artists and not industry people. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, Carmine pissed him off, and Tom pissed Carmine off, and Carmine quit, and I just got a frantic call. It's like, can you teach Wednesdays? And <laughs> that was basically it. <laughs> I mean, I had taught a year for I had taught a year for Tom on Mondays at that point. So, the school wasn't what you wanted. Um, not in 1987. Not no. 1987. Yeah. Um, and really prohibitively expensive. It sounds like. Yeah, and you know, my, yeah, and my family couldn't afford it, and and you know, there was some financial aid to be had, but there was also part of that as student loans, and I was like, I'm not going to go into debt for this place or or for this education. It's mm. not, it's not right. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up 90 miles north of New York City, maybe a hundred, maybe a hundred in Kingston, New York, or just outside of Kingston, New York. But it, it might as well be rural Pennsylvania. It's so far away from everything. Mm. Uh, my family, you know, the family. My father's side of the family, who were from Kingston, New York, you couldn't drag them to New York City. 
you know, there was just no getting them interested in, in that place at all. You know, that's so we were not like in the we were not like in the perimeter of New York. We we're nowhere near it, even though yeah. we we're only an hour and a half from it. It's just a different reality. Yeah, but once I heard about SBA and once and I knew it was in New York. I mean, that excited me. I was the you know I was the weird kid from the suburbs who just wanted to be in the city. Um, did you get a chance to experience much like new culture while you were there? Like, or was it just kind of like in-depth school? This is not right. I'm running away. No, there was no, no. We did tons of things, and and you know there was a little cadre. Me, Sam Henderson, and Mark Arsenal, the guy who runs Wow Cool, mm-hmm. were a sort of a little triumvirate. Um, and then there were lots of other. Um, people in, in, in my class other by lots I mean maybe three or four others who were interesting but they were maybe fine arts or film but we knew each other because of the dorms or whatever and um, but no we would always dash off to the film forum and see whatever they were playing that's a, that was you know that's the uh, movie you know they showed different movie everything down there or we'd run through the galleries or all sorts of things like that Mostly a film form, a lot of movies, and music. You know, like, uh, and I was really into folk music, so I'd go down to the back fence and have a hot chocolate because I was too young to drink, and just listen to whatever folk music was there. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff was very, very exciting to me. So you're about eighteen or nineteen. Seventeen for the first month. You know, wow. I, have, I have a late birthday. It's in October, so, and then yeah, eighteen. Wow, that's I couldn't imagine being eighteen and moving from smaller kind of yeah. rural to the big city. I'm still mad I missed Tom Waits and Billy Bragg that year. I've <laughs> seen both of them like really in their prime. I mean, maybe a couple of years too late for Billy Bragg, but anyway, I'm still mad about missing both of those. <laughs> but I saw Sinead O'Connor in her, in her prime, and that was a great show, and a couple other shows. But yeah, I mean, we were always just trying to... And we were trying to convince, like... Uh, um, who's the... Now I can't remember the woman. Oh, never mind. But, you know, we'd go to, like, little theater shows. If we just hear about, like, a friend of a friend who had some theater show going on and it was $5, we could afford it, we would go. Um, stuff like that. Yeah, I love just being around that much stuff happening and that many people doing things. That was really important to me. So um, what attracted you to Seattle? Well, that it was obvious in one way, and... Uh, serendipitous in a couple other ways. I mean, the obvious thing was that Fanographics was there. Jim Woodring, Peter Bag, Roberta Gregory, not exactly remembering exactly who else was there at the time, but that's where the comics were being made at the time. That's where independent comics were being made. Um, and John Lewis, who we were, we were friends with in the mail, um, was deciding to leave St. Paul, Minneapolis, where he was from, to move to Seattle. This was like he was about to make a big move too. Um, and oh here's Leela. Hi Leela. I'm being interviewed. Um, hi Leela. You have a high chair. Or what is that? It's a it's a seat for a bath. Oh it's a oh okay. Alright, so I'm gonna continue. Um right, wait so um and so John was uh, moving to Seattle at the same time, and for the same reason. It's like he wanted to be closer to comics people. And 
I also coincidentally had a aunt, my mother's sister, who lived in Renton, which is, I don't know, half an hour away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had uh, the ability to just sort of crash there until I found an apartment and stuff. And so it seemed like a no-brainer. It was just like, let's, let's go where the comics are. And John and I became instant, instant best friends. I mean, we were friends in the email already. But once we got to hang out, we were really good friends. At that point, it's kind of an interesting watershed point for comics in Seattle because um, you felt, I think, Sturm was there at that time, wasn't he? Right, yeah. And um, Megan Sturm Kels. the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Megan had just gotten out of um, uh, Olympia. Not like she had to escape or anything, but she had <laughs> just graduated Evergreen. Um, Brubaker, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, Dave Lasky. Yep. And um, certain we're forgetting one or two. I'm sure more. Colin Upton was visiting a lot. Yeah, we saw a little bit of him. He'd, he'd come and visit and stay with um, with Roberta um, and Donna Barr. We didn't see much of Donna, but but she was she has been there a very long time. And for and for what it's worth, I mean, the small there was there were so many factions there at the time. It was really really robust. I mean, there was Ed Vick and his crowd that did Comics FX, and Comics FX was sort of the comics version of Fact Sheet Five. Um, and I seem to remember that they picked it up from someone else, but maybe that's not the case. And Ed also, Ed Vick also had a publishing house himself called Moo Press, mm-hmm. and Moo published Ed Brubaker, and Moo published um, Dave Lasky, and it might have published John. Didn't he do a lot of furry comics too? Yeah, mm-hmm. but also Dave Lasky's weird James Joyce comics, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, I'm pretty sure they did a Brubaker comic. Yeah, was it the the one with the like a Gilbert cover, the suburbicatory. Maybe they didn't. Maybe I'm wrong about that. That might have been Aeon. Sorry. No, Aeon. Aeon was Ed Vick. Yeah. Oh, okay. You're right, and it wasn't Moo, but maybe it was Moo also. But no, Ed was definitely Ed. Sorry, Ed Vick was definitely Ann Press, and I'm pretty sure they did an Ed Brubaker comic, but now I forget which one. It, it might have been the suburbicatory. I can't speak. Suburgatory. Oh yeah. Suburgatory. I don't know. <laughs> Um, you could just Wikipedia, but whatever. <laughs> I turn my internet off, or I turn my browsers off. Um, so that education, kind of hanging out with all these cartoonists, um, did that kind of Jason Lutz, we forgot. Oh yeah, yeah, another uh, comics educator. Yeah. Um, how did that for you kind of affect you? What you wanted to create and how you wanted to create. Well, that was the experience I wanted in New York or at SBA. I wanted the camaraderie of people really serious, possibly over-serious to outsider eyes about comics. Um, and we, once we all found each other, five or six of us, we sort of formed a group and we had monthly meetings and we'd critique each other's work and it was fantastic. And, and I learned a lot from... You know, I stole a lot from John Lewis, and I learned a lot from critiques from James, and learned a lot about visual storytelling from Jason Lutz, and I um, learned about a lot about letting my imagination run wild from Dave Blasky, and um, it was just, yeah, there was so much to learn from there, and from, you know, and from just from being in the orbit of Fantagraphics, I mean, really, we would just crash their parties and be kind of annoying. At least I would. I was too shy to really speak to too many of them. Um, I think this was the time where Brubaker would show up and chew them out. 
Oh, he was fearless. <laughs> in fact, when he blew to he blew into town a few months after I'm, I'm not even sure how long I had been there. But John and I blew into town, and like he he honestly he was like a hurricane that you heard about a few days earlier. It's like you know Brubaker's moving up here, and then when he moved into town, I like I think he got off the bus and went to a party and just like insulted everybody there, and then. And then I was like, what was that? Where's Brubaker? And then, and then we wind up living all together soon after. <laughs> Ed's, Ed's wonderful. So much different now. I mean, he is really, you know, he's really just a disciplined writer. And as far as I know, he doesn't really want, like to socialize very much. But then he was just nothing but, but socializing and, and getting in your face and being kind of obnoxious. I've and heard... I a lot from Ed too. I mean, Ed was Ed was like maybe three years older than me and John, but we, but he was really sure of himself as a storyteller and would love to give you advice, and that was great. We ate it up. Um, at that point, was he already thinking of writing for other folks? No. You know, I was in Seattle for five years, and by the end of that point, he had started writing uh, one or two things for Vertigo, and maybe one or two things for. Jason Lutz through drawn a quarterly or something, but mm-hmm. but at that time he was only drawing his own stuff through Caliber, that would be Low Life. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think Anne picked up Low Life. That might be what happened. But um, so no, at that point he was still writing and drawing, and it slowly became obvious that he had a difficult time with drawing. He didn't like drawing so much. But he loved writing, and, and slowly we, did, you know, John and I, who were his roommates for so long, watched him just become a writer rather than a, than a writer artist. Had you always been a consummate drawer? Like, do, were you like constantly drawing things? Um, was that just automatic need for you? Yeah, but I was never very good at it, and I never. Um, had much variety in what I drew. I was, um, I would just draw the same sort of characters over and over again with the same sort of plaintive look on their face. Um, when I went to SBA, I was surprised at these people who filled up sketchbooks with drawings from their imagination of just worlds and and weird creatures and, and all sorts of things and situations and scenarios and and I, I didn't have that imagination. Um, I had that drive to tell stories but I, I couldn't access it yet, not at that point. Um, it really wasn't until, you know, I mean, I did some one-pagers and maybe I did something as long. No, I don't think I did anything longer than a one-pager even in my first year of college and it wasn't until moving to Seattle that I started doing mini comics, eight pages here and then sixteen and then and then just never being uh never being satisfied until I, I made that first fifty six page comic and then from there I had the confidence to do whatever I wanted. I was thinking about um your how to say everything book and I feel like you're constantly thinking about the mechanics of comics. Mm-hmm. Um and just wondering about how, when you're reading comics, how you process them as a reader. Um, well, I mean, I am. I'm always. I'm always processing them as a teacher these days. But I think that's partially because I was so late 
too um, so late to become an artist of any kind of caliber. I mean, it was very, very hard for me to come up with ideas, for instance, or to, once I had an idea, to figure out how to tell that story. Or, once I figured out how to tell that story, how to draw the things that needed to be drawn, all those things were difficult for me. But I had to do them. I was so driven to do them. So the fact that they were difficult for me made it easy for me to pay attention to all the fact, all the parts, all the, all the, you know, the entire, uh, the entire process. Um, the How to Say Everything book came about specifically after I spent five years doing comic strips, basically daily, and then was sitting on my butt, sort of waiting for some other things to happen, and I didn't have anything else to do, and I just felt like I had to say everything I learned in the past five years in that book. Um, so, yeah, I think about the mechanics a lot. And for a while, I mean, I think about formal ideas, too. And for a long time, I thought I was a bit of a formalist, but I'm not. Um, I just like new ideas and, and formalism. People like Matt Madden and, you know, I, I, I'm not sure who the real prominent formalists in, the, in comics are except Matt. Will you say Bertuzzi sometimes? Well, um, yeah, he tries new things all the time, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't get much more formalist than, than Matt, Matt no, and stuff. No. Um, and lastly, too, actually, people mm. who think about, like, they'll think about a page design before they'll think about a character. Um, and and I, I, I was never that guy, but, that, but doing that and emulating that sort of process always led me to new ideas which I liked, but it was always the, the thrill of the idea more than the thrill of the mechanics that really interested me. But paying attention to the mechanics helps me be a good teacher, I think. Now, you were making mini-comics in the early 90s, um, and then you got a Zurich grant in 94, was it? Well, I think I applied in 93, and I think the book came out in, like, spring or summer 94, somewhere around there, yeah. Okay. Now, what was that book? That was Hutch Owens working hard, and that was after four or five mini comics of um, you know sixteen pages here and there, and that was after Megan Kelso had won one, Lasky had won one, and John. By the time I started to apply, John had applied, but I don't think he had won yet. And it just we just it was just the thing we were all going to do. <laughs> we just decided we were all going to win Zara Grants. <laughs> Um, and we were all going to, but I mean, that's, that's a little facetious. We were all going to make great comics. That's what we wanted to do and tell great stories. Um, and so I just, you know, I just set my mind to it and it took a long time to make that 56 page comic, but I was very happy in the end. Um, and Jason Lutz won one too. I can't remember the order, but I do know Megan Kelso won and Lasky won mm -hmm. early, earlier than, and like Lasky might've won, won like the second round or something. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, um, I think he was born drawing comics. Yeah, he's such an interesting guy. We're still trying to get that Dave Lasky compendium out someday. I would love it. Uh huh. That uh, James Joyce uh, Marvel comic he did is still one of my favorite comics. Isn't of it all great? Time. Uh huh. I show that every year to my students. It's fantastic. So, but enough about David. Let's talk yeah. about you. <laughs> Sorry, David. 
Um, now, Hutch Owen, it's uh, it's a part of you. He's a part of you. He's your frustrations. He, he did start out that way. Actually, you know, there's a if you watch, I think it's um, it's either Hooked on Comics or uh, the other documentary about comics in that era. Um, it's not Hooked on Comics. It's actually the other one, Comic Book Confidential. And I think um, Bill Griffith says that Zippy is this part of him that like broke off in like 1974 or something from his own life and ever since then he's been checking in on him every you know as often as he can and I, I felt like that was a perfect description of Hutch Owen like I think Hutch Owen like burst out of my body somehow in 1994 and then it was just this parallel life I was leading and he started he did start as a like as an I made a fake autobiographical comic. I sort of projected myself into the future, and it was, a, and I imagined myself as a bum living in a alleyway, um, masturbating and eating free food that my ex-girlfriend would bring me. And um, and so when that comic was done, I then realized there's more to that character. I just have to not let him be Tom. I have to give him a name, and I have to let him be more of himself and yeah and that's so that that's where that came from do you um is it an output for just kind of societal frustrations at the time for sure i mean that comic is that comic's less about satirizing the um the commercial world which is what everybody thought it was and there was some of that of course and more about well, what you just said, frustrations about society. And I felt like society was not, and it still isn't, um, formed or um, organized in a way that allows people to really reach their potential. It doesn't, it's not interested in that at all. It's just interested in commerce and where you fit in that system, where you fit in the commercial system is all that matters. Um, and that's what that comment was about. And so there was a little boy trying to figure this out, you know, and not having any luck with it. And there was Hutch, who realized this a while ago and abandoned the idea of trying to fit into the system anymore. And so this boy was learning from all these things. Meanwhile, there was the, the sort of, like, you know, evil CEO character or whatever who really just needed everybody to play their role, to be either consumer well basically to be consumer everybody <laughs> the more consumers the better um, and that for what it's worth that structure was totally stolen from Star Wars when I realized that the boy character was Luke Skywalker Hutch Owen was Ben Kenobi and the CEO was Darth Vader it all sort of made sense to me I don't know if that matters to any <laughs> I like it but they were kids together I don't know. I think it poked a hole in your uh, analogy there. Oh, Hutch and Dennis, but didn't but Kenobi and and Anakin had similar backgrounds, right? Sure, that's still the same thing. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean Kenobi was like his mentor. Yeah. Oh, it, I don't remember the specifics anymore, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a Star Wars oh, nerd. Yeah, oh, it's great. Uh, oh, okay. It's my cross to bear. Um, I never saw the middle one of the with uh, the Clone Wars one. The one where uh, Yoda does all the fighting. I... Was it good? Uh, I don't think you're missing anything. Yeah. I think. Um, the third one. I think you'll get more of a Jason Statham movie, maybe. Um, 
No, I totally derailed myself on what I was thinking about. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the Hutch, um, I guess, is like a proletariat philosopher, kind of checked yeah. out of the system. Right. Um, one of the things I was thinking about reading the first book is um, you do a little uh, Hamlet analogy where he's reading Hamlet or quoting Hamlet and then right. pulls the mask out of the ground like um, Hamlet pulling York skull. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like, that choice to do that, I mean, it's very, at least I'm presuming, specific, you know, literal references. And, and I'm wondering if that's something, like, you've tried to do, um, or is that just, like, kind of experimenting? Well, you know, Hamlet was very indecisive, and, you know, I knew that, and just wanted to bring a little bit of that in. But there's nothing super pretentious about the mask. I was actually more interested in... I in the play within the play that happens in Hamlet and when there's a part in Hutch Owen where he um, does this little puppet show towards the end and that, I mean if anything was influenced by Hamlet it was that but to, to say much was influenced by Hamlet is very pretentious <laughs> <laughs> it's okay my favorite TV show is influenced by Hamlet so what is what is that Sons of Anarchy <laughs> Oh, I don't. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a TV show about a biker gang. Oh, wow. Yeah, but the uh, first three seasons are pretty much Hamlet. Um, the main yep. character uh, talks to, or reads uh, a letter from his father who's passed away, and his mother's hooked up with his dad's best friend, which in a biker gang they're brothers, you know, and then, so it's all this kind of very deliberate Hamlet reference. Um, huh. Yeah. All right. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, if you want to watch a TV show about a biker gang, um, it's, it's, you know, well worth set, it. When, when is it set? Right now. Oh. Yeah. But we have, we still have biker gangs? I have no idea. In California. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, the Hells Angels are pretty prominent in the east coast of Canada. Oh. Yeah. They, uh, they run all the drugs in Montreal. They do? Yeah. Yeah, here they're just a bunch of, like, you know you know, sort of charming Vietnam vets. No, no, in the 80s there were huge, uh, there was a huge war I think between the uh, Italian gangsters of Montreal and the, and the Hells Angels and a lot of people killed and stuff. Thanks, okay. Yeah, so the more you know. Um, <laughs> back to Hutch Owen, our favorite uh, disgruntled member of society. Um, did, what was it about Hutch that kind of stuck to you as a character you keep going with, with doing this uh, comic strip? Well, in the book. there was a point, you know, for, it, it seemed like forever, but it might have only been two or three years, but there was a, when I finished that book, I wanted to make another book. And, when, and every time I finished a book, I wanted to make another book. And I wanted to start from scratch. I mean, I wanted to invent a new world, invent new characters, and and um, all of that stuff, and that was really exciting. And, and I did that for a while. And I had this huge store of ideas. Maybe it was a sentence long or something, or a phrase, or a couple notions. And they would be on index cards or notebooks or something. And, and at some point, I realized that a lot of these ideas were better if they were Hutch Owen ideas, and not just starting from scratch ideas. Um, and so I just started digging out some of those ideas and making them Hutch Owen stories and just having fun with it. And so for, like, the first 
book was felt like a matter of life and death. Like I just had to make this book. And the other ones I just had fun with for a while. You know, I think there were three more in that first collection. Mm-hmm. I tried to make them as meaningful as possible. And in fact, I think the fourth one is actually kind of powerful. But um, but they were a lot easier. Like I was less um, desperate to make these comics um, and just more compelled. Um, and then after that, I did a bunch of little short ones and a couple long ones, and that's the second Hachoman collection. And at that point, I sort of figured I was finished for a while. But then I got the then I sort of got the bug of trying to figure out comic strips, which is you know my first love was comic strips, and I realized I'd abandoned them because because they're so dreadful. The only decent comic you know in the past thirty years was Calvin and Hobbes, and nothing even close to anything that good. But at some point, I thought, like, I should try this. I really want to learn comic strips. And um, so after a little, like, sort of internship that I did with Shane and Garrity, the web cartoonist who did Narbonic, I, I just started doing Hachon strips. And I just wanted to see if it fit into that model. I also wanted to, to it, I wanted it to be in a mainstream venue. I felt like it, it, ha- it was a voice that needed to be heard. So how many years did you do that for? I did the Hutch strips for about four years, I think, on a daily basis, and it, it sort of divides into two categories. I did one where it was basically on the web, and I was just I was trying everything to get it um, seen by as many p- people as possible, and then I managed to, right around the time I was about to give up, I managed to sell it to two newspapers, one in Boston and one in New York, on a daily basis, and I sort of... Um, recharged it, gave it a new beginning, and um, and did it for another year and a half, two years, something like that. So maybe four years. And then and I did Trunk Town for about nine months prior to that, which is the thing I did with Shane. And, um, and, uh, and it was a really great run. And I really, I, I, it, it's the happiest I've been creating is probably doing that those strips. And it's, not the deepest stuff in the world, and there are parts where I was trying, I think, a little too hard to to appeal to the masses. But there's some really good, good, funny stuff in there too. And I, at the at the same time, I was trying constantly with every every amount of business acumen I had and social acumen I had that to to sell it to to the syndicates because mm-hmm. I felt like you know there should be at least one edgy strip on the <laughs> in the newspapers. Or two. I mean, there was Boondocks. They don't want the edgy. No. No. One syndicate, they were very friendly. One syndicate guy said, look, it's like 1964 out there. It's like, we don't, we can't possibly sell anything like this. Now, was it after, from Seattle, did you first move to Gainesville? Uh, no, I moved to Austin, Texas. That's where I moved, that's where I met Matt Madden and uh, Warren Craghead. Um, uh, Josue Menjavar, a couple other um, cartoonists. He's a Vancouver boy now. Oh, tell him I said hi. Oh. I run, in, run into him on the street. Is he still playing basketball? We used to play basketball all the time. He bikes a lot. I know okay. that much. I, I mean, he's still a model for me in that way because the only reason we'd play basketball is that is so we wouldn't get sluggish. And he'd always say that. I just don't want to get sluggish. I was like, that's the reason. That's great. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, he's so sweet. Um... And um, Walt Hocum was there. He's a great guy. 
and there were some other cartoonists who I didn't get to know too well, sadly. Um, Roy Tompkins and Penny Van Horn. You know, we met at parties now and then. But I only I lived there nine months, maybe Austin, and then moved to Morocco. I was with uh, my girlfriend at the time, who, who I met in Seattle. We m- broke up in Morocco, but all this time I was working for Kodansha in the, the Japanese publisher, and I was doing ja- work for them with John Lewis. John was writing, and I was drawing. Oh wow! And that was going so badly that we had to get into the same city to make it work because this was all just on the cusp of email. It was basically we were faxing everything and and they didn't understand a word we were saying and we didn't understand a word they were saying. So when I broke up with her, um, I moved to Gainesville and that would be 1996 or 7, something like that. Was this the time at Kodansha when they had like Paul Pope doing stuff there and Mazzuccelli? Yes, and also uh, Garrett Azumi was another one and that might have been it. There might be one other but nobody really reached had a lot of success with them, except maybe Garrett, actually. Garrett had a bunch of stuff published. They really loved David, and I think they, I mean, they gave Paul a lot of money, but I don't know how much of Paul's stuff they actually ran. Um, I don't think he ever finished his story for them. Right. But I, but it, they would have probably serialized it even still, like, mm-hmm. if they, if it was what they wanted. But what they wanted was so specific, even though they said they wanted American artists, they wanted Japanese comics. That's my takeaway on it, anyway. And yeah. um, couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. You know, we had a contract for 140-some pages, and, and slowly over time, over three years, we delivered those pages, but only, I think, 24 of them saw print. So did you have to try and like figure out different ways of telling stories that may appease them? Or did you just kind of like, we're doing our comics and we'll see what happens? Well, yeah, we thought we would do comics our own way and that's what they wanted. But it took us a long time to realize they, the, in Japan in 1994, or whenever this was, sorry, seven, more like that. Um, what they wanted was lots of the main character. And they really wanted to identify with the main character. And they wanted to follow the main character. And John, who's very complicated in some of his plots and stuff was writing plots where main character wouldn't be anywhere for pages and pages and they'd say things like well maybe the main character should be poking in the window in this and watching the scene and John would be like the character's like you know in another part of town at this point no but what they what they wanted was different than than what John was capable of writing and eventually John just quit he just I can't do this anymore and I started writing and um, I did okay, and that was, and I sort of finished it out, and that's when it, the whole thing sort of stopped. Though, when we finished our contract with them. Now, where does Sand figure into this? Uh, the Sands. It was. Not, it was. Uh, I started that just bef- in Texas, I think, and um, it was one, two, three issues published by Black Eye, and then. And I never wanted to do them as issues anyway. So I wanted to do it as a big book because I knew it would be a book. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, um, we decided to stop doing them as pamphlets, which was fine with me. And um, and then I forget when it finally came out, but it came out as a compilation that was beautifully designed by Michelle Vrana at Black Eye. And uh, I don't know, you know... Like, like I was saying before, I always wanted to like invent a new world, invent new characters, and, and that was that was 
me sort of experimenting a little more formally as well. New Hat, which came between Hutch Owen and The Sands, was an experiment in sort of breaking up time and having some um, shifting shifting vantage points. And The Sands was more the the big part of The Sands for me was the the third chapter, which was a bunch of possible scenes, like potential scenes, but a lot of them overlapped and some of them contradicted each other. And I thought it was like the coolest thing I'd ever read, but no one seemed to care. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. I've only got the first two issues. I don't have the third or the book. Oh, oh the, the book is interesting. And, and um, it was really influenced by um, a Peanuts collection called Sandlot, which was all the baseball strips. Oh, okay. And, um, and what it was influenced by was the fact that it was all thematically related, but not but there wasn't much of a plot. Um, and so what I tried to do was set it, set up the world pretty concretely in the first part, and then the second part sort of throw a kink in the works, and then the third part just sort of like scatter a bunch of um, a bunch of thematically related or related to the plot or potential endings and things like that. And I tried to scatter those around. And I, I thought it was really good. And, I, um, and actually, you know, a lot of people liked it. It's, it was really neat for me kind of reading all the Hutch Owen stuff and reading that and just how it, it's almost like a flip side to a coin where Hutch Owen's like this like diatribe um, of just like urban intenseness and Sands just felt so open. Uh -huh. And it was breathing. I was much more inclined to to the latter, um, which is why Hutch became hard for me towards the end. But, um, and I was never good at the diatribes, but what I was trying to create with Hutch were, were like weird little fables. Um, but the yeah, that openness and the sort of weird poeticism of the sands. But the sands had a lot of like rage too <laughs> I think I'm always trying to balance rage and poetry somehow <laughs> um, I guess one of the carryover stories or maybe in particular that I was thinking of with the, the Hutch is the one about the ghosts um, and now was that done around in response to 9-11 and just like how you're resolving being in New York with that the one about the what? the ghosts Oh, guy. yeah, you know, I mean, I'm embarrassed by a lot of these later Hutch stories because they don't have, you know, I'm embarrassed by most, like most artists, I'm probably embarrassed by most of what I've done, but there was a particular point where it was, um, where I no longer could blame naivete, and so, like, anything bad about my comics is my own fault, and so you're, that's around the time where I really feel like I'm I'm to blame, and it's not just oh, you know, it's just a young creator. But that said, it was definitely there were there were two factors there. One was that it started right after 9/11, and I was trying to just yeah, sort of comprehend that world. But it was also started right when I started teaching, and I didn't really have much energy except for one panel or one page a week or so, and I wanted to improvise too, and I was tired of um, structuring stories, which I'd done so much of with the Hutch stuff anyway, prior to that. So it was those two factors. I wanted to improvise. I wanted to deal with 9-11 in a way that I that wouldn't be trite. And I don't know if I succeeded in that. But, um, and, uh, and give myself, you know, 
a little bit, the freedom to only do a page a week. Maybe I did two, actually. I think it was two pages. But yep. yeah, 9-11 was a big deal. And, you know, I was in New York at the time, and me and Leela were there. And, um, and uh, yeah, trying to understand that. And trying to plug the Hutch Owen character into it, too. Now, you, you mentioned in an email that that's the semester when you started teaching. Um, was this the class you were talking about earlier that you took over? No, no. I, I didn't take... <laughs> Uh, I started teaching, yeah, I started teaching like September, like, 3rd, 2011. <laughs> um, no, because, no, 9-11 was a, a Monday, and I taught Mondays, so I would have started on the 4th. So my first class would have been the 4th, canceled on the 11th, and then I think we went back on the 18th. Um, and I never thought about it until, like, years later. I was like, wow, that's a weird time to start teaching. Um but yeah, so I, you know, not much to say about that really, except that yeah, I started a week before nine eleven. Now, one of the things that someone had talked about with your teaching um, was how you're really able to kind of figure out what the students were into and kind of run with that. Mm-hmm. And kind of maybe tell me a bit about that, like about how the the kind of need to like connect artists to work. Um, that could benefit their understanding of what they're making or what they're going to make? Well, it's not anything I try too hard at. I just like, I just believe that if the kid is in my class, they want doing, they want to be making comics and they want to be fulfilling their own potential. And I, I certainly don't assume they want to be me. So try and figure out who, you know, where they're coming from and, and what motivates them. And, and, and I try to push them in the, in the right direction, the, the, you know, a direction away from what I see as bad taste, but, but, a, but towards good versions of what they're interested in. Um, I mean, I'm glad if somebody said that about me. And it, it's true that I'll, I'll occasionally get emails from from kids I barely remember who say, like, you know, you were the only teacher who, like, really respected what I was trying to do. Like, oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I, but I do. And, I mean, I, I feel like if you're, if you are, have at least, you know, bothered to sign up and pay and go through all this, you know, red tape or whatever, if land in this classroom then and something's bringing you there and I, I you know I want to try and figure it out and help you figure it out I, I don't know I think that's just something in my makeup I can't really I can't really explain too much about the methods there I just believe in people what do you want for yourself out of teaching like what's that reciprocal need well um I mean, obviously, I'm always learning through teaching. And I'm learning, uh, you know, a bunch of ways. I'm, I'm learning because I'm always studying more so I can teach better, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I never was much of an EC Comics fan, but now I'm buying all those IDW reprints that I can and just, like, pouring over them. Um, because, like, every line matters, you know, every 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 patch of black matters that you put down and I, I want to understand as much as possible about about that about line drawing and light and shadow and, and narrative and stuff um, 
I, for whatever reason, find it very gratifying when people, when I, and again, I think I've touched on this, when I see people reaching past what they're, what they were capable of last week and, and, and towards something more, that, it moves me a lot. It really um, makes me so happy to have students improving. And it really, I mean, you know, it's, it's best when they, they improve according to my tastes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's almost as gratifying when they improve in whatever way they need to improve. I like, you know, I, I, I think the world should be full of people generating things that are true to them and, and um, you know, constructive and, and that communicate something about the human experience. And, and whenever people can do that, I'm, and if I can in any way help, I, I just feel like I'm making the world a better place. Now, maybe let's connect this with, with where you're at now with um, the second year of um, artist residencies at the uh, your school, the Sequential Artist Workshop. Did I get the name right? Yeah. Artist uh, is like, it's like the actor's studio, no apostrophe. And it's plural. But you got it right. <laughs> maybe my pronunciation. Um... And so the that choice, um, you and Leela moved back down to Gainesville, left the hustle and bustle of New York um, to start uh -huh. this school. Uh -huh. And did you kind of know what you're getting into when you made that decision? Or? Um, no, but I do a lot of things not knowing what I'm getting into. I just feel like they're the right step. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do a lot of things knowing what the first couple steps will be and believing that what follows will be both challenging and rewarding and, and the right thing to do. So, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't exactly know how it would play out. And it's still just beginning, and I'm not sure how it will play out. You know, I mean, my original conception, because it was available, was that it would be like CCS of the South. Um, you know, and it's clearly not that. It's much more um, bare bones and and uh, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a lot warmer than uh, Vermont. Well, certainly there's that. Yeah. Um, but it's a you know, you know, I'm giving it giving every ounce of of seriousness and dedication I have. I'm you know, and I. It's my answer to what I didn't experience in 1987 when I went to SBA. You know, it's a serious program for people who seriously want to tell comics based on their own human experience. And it's not. Um, and uh, and it's a, and I'm trying to make it affordable. That's that's something I'm really I'm really curious about. Is is because you're doing these like condensed week long or two week long sessions what what is the cost for for someone to come in well that's nothing for like if you want to study with Dash Shaw for a week that's $250 or Gabrielle Bell next week or um, whoever we're signing up we think we're getting Aiden Cook for next year 
um, uh, and the cost for to study with us for a year, which basically, well, it's you know some two semesters, which is August to April. That's thirty five hundred dollars, and that's I mean that's a tenth of what SCAD costs, a mm -hmm. tenth. And I mean per year, not like the entire SCAD program. And I know our program's better than theirs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm absolutely sure of it. We don't have the computers they have, probably. And, you know, if they have an animation class that you could take on the side or something, it's certainly going to be better than anything we offer that way. Mm -hmm. But as far as storytelling and as far as comics history and as far as personal mentorship and as far as learning how to tell stories visually, I, utterly, I'd, in a second, I'd put ours against theirs or any, anything else in the, in the country. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, trying to make it affordable. It's a tough thing. I'm going to, I need to find a lot more grant money and stuff like that. But I know it's, it, I mean, I've created this, I'm trying to create the school I would have been happiest at when I was 18. Mm -hmm. It's kind of something that excites you to want to be. It puts me in a room with great teachers and with great students and makes and forces me to be with them for a year, you know, and, that, and that's, that's a great thing. And, and none of the institutional political garbage that goes on in big, big um, colleges and none of the lazy, you know, none of the, hopefully none of the bad teaching and the lazy students that you also can wind up there. <laughs> um, what kind of expectations do you have from your students as far as like learning objectives um, for what they come out with? Well, you know, I mean, every this has been true in every class I've ever been is that every student is wildly different, um, and you have the the main objective is that they are much better coming out when they than rather when they go in. Um, but more specifically, we want them to be able to tell a story visually and with finesse or, let's say, elegance or at least the choice to, the dis, you know, at least the conscious choice to be inelegant if that's what they want, um, to understand what choices they have regarding clarity, right? You know, you, I can make it clear here or I can make it confusing here. But if I make it confusing, it's because I've chosen to, not just because I'm a rotten artist and I'm just doing this because it just seems cool. So what we try to make them is very, very um, awake, you know, very, very conscious to every choice they're making, whether it's visual or narrative or, um, or, any, or structural or, or whatever. Um, and we we hold them accountable. We, me and um, Justine, who's our main drawing teacher, halfway through the year, we, we hold personal meetings with everybody, and, and we really tell them, we don't think you're getting this, and we think you're being lazy about this, and, and we want you to, um, we think you have potential here that you're not paying attention to, or we think you're doing a great job, and we want to hear from you what you think you're, not, you're missing out on. And, mm -hmm. Um, you know, the classes are small enough that we can really, really take a personal interest in everybody. Um, but ideally, they would come out being intelligent visual storytellers. That's really it. 
Now, um, I feel like I'm kind of dancing around stuff. Um, sure. Uh, after you move down, um, and this kind of ties into what you're working on right now, um, the we have the the retrofit book, Daddy Lightning, um, and the which I guess you did prior or after your daughter was born. Can't remember the details. Um, well, I wrote it in the first couple of weeks she was born because it was such a hectic, crazy experience, and I was teaching a lot in New York. And yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I wrote it in the first three weeks. Um, but I didn't have the time to draw it. And at some point, I, when um, Box Brown set up Retrofit and uh, said, you know, was looking for things, I said, I think I can, I think, you know, things are slowing down and I can find the time and I can, I could probably get it to you by April of 2012 or something. And then um, Rosalie died in November 2011 and for whatever reason which I'm still not even sure I understand I decided I had to finish that comic it, like it was it was never a question so after months of just recoiling I spent all of February and March of 2012 drawing it so it was written while she was alive and drawn after she died Did that change um, how you want to do the book, or kind of you kind of stay true to what your original intent was? Yeah, it didn't change. Writing? Didn't really change it. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't change anything except you know a little bit of the packaging. But I, I, I stayed very close to the script I had already written. I'm pretty sure I had a script written. I can't remember if I had a script or just like a very detailed outline. Mm -hmm. And then celebration of her. It yeah. Was, it was about how wild and joyous and crazy it was to have her in the first few weeks, and so it's really want to celebrate her. It's neat, like it's your, um, like the anxiety that like new father anxiety in there, and just kind of like I don't know, it's like this ingrained to men know what they're doing with these little things. I tried to make it fun. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it. It was fun. <laughs> Um, but I kind of got out of, like, um, that kind of hecticness you're talking about within those first couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, like, no, that was really, yeah. And that whole learning curve, and just, like, this is, like, a whole brand new experience. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and uh, the other, the, the book you're working on right now for, I can't remember the publisher. St. Martin's Press. St. Martin's Press, the, the, the book. Um, about her passing, um, did you take a, some time after finishing Daddy Lightning to start on that? No, I don't think so. I don't. I don't exactly remember, but I think I started right pretty soon right after. I've always um, needed to process. The, especially my emotional life through comics and through making stories. Um, and so right after, when she died, I, I mean, the only thing really except ball and 
have some conversations with Leela and walk around in circles that I could do was right for months or, or certainly six or seven weeks. And, and I knew all that writing would become a book sometime. Uh, and then I finished Daddy Lightning, and I'm pretty sure I just moved from one project to the other and just said, okay, now it's time to start the other, the other one. And, uh, you know, and then I, you know, did a mini-comic and then another and another, sort of plowing through all the writing I had done. Was this your first, like, I didn't, going through stuff, I haven't noticed very much autobio stuff. Um, yeah, there's almost none. Or, um, in fact, maybe none, except, uh, you know, I did like a three-pager for the 9-11 anthology that had a tiny bit of an, uh a tiny bit of autobio, but I never even believed very, very much in the idea of of memoir or autobio comics. But maybe it's because I didn't have any stories to tell. I don't know. Um, I always believed very much in fictional autobio, <laughs> which is something I picked up from Julie Dusset, I think, or Dusset. I think um, she always made these like, like, yeah, fictional, fantastical, yeah, and they were they were wonderful. And she's such an influence on me and, and John Porcellino and a bunch of other cartoonists from my generation, um, where she would picture herself in other other situations and another or a different version of herself. I think Gabrielle Bell does a really sly version of that too. Yeah. Um, and so that I liked a lot, but no, I never did anything very straightforward. It wasn't until this happened that I that I did. One of the, I mean, there's there's a bunch of compelling things with the way you're telling the story. Um, first off, is visually, it's stylistically to me, very different. I'm trying my best. <laughs> it's hard, and I need to be a little more serious. Um, and I am, but just being serious isn't enough. Like you know, I can be serious and not have any chops, and it's going to be dumb and ugly. And so I'm trying to be serious and, and make the drawings actually say something, too. And I'm not hitting it every time. And there's a lot I'm going to have to go back and change. And there's a lot I hope I'll be forgiven for, for not being capable of something more um, expressive or profound. Visually, I mean, pretty happy with the writing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm actually, I think the visuals, they, they work particularly strongly for me. Um, one, hey. of the, one of the things I'm, I'm really interested is um, it's really weird obscure thing is your usage of zipitone in it is these patches that yeah. goes in there um, which is well, a really interesting effect I love zipitone which is, is a brand name I never used actually I only used chart pack or letter set and there was a, <laughs> but we always call it zipitone right so that's fine but um, you know I started with zipitone since I was really into comic strips, and I and I started in the late '80s and early '90s, and um, and I was it's a form of drawing for me, um, and I just love it. And the only person that ever did anything to my eye super interesting with Zipitone was Eddie Campbell, um, mm -hmm. and he sculpted with it and painted with it. And you know, I always hoped I would get I would give myself the freedom to do a little bit of that. But there was also, you know, 
when this happened, I just wanted to draw with a knife. Um, and so, yeah, I did a lot of that stuff with Sipitown. Sadly, now, partially because of time, it's a mixture of computer tone and Zipatone, with computer tone currently leading out. But, um, but I'm doing it in a, in a way that makes it very um, tangible and manual. Um, but also, I've got. I'm pretty sure the last couple chapters, I'm going to try. I'm going to go back to the Zipatone because it will sort of tie everything back together. I don't know how much people will be able to tell the difference, but I can tell the difference. I like that idea of, like, with the knife, you create these kind of visceral, angular shapes. Yeah, it's really important. And the book, I mean, I don't know how pretentious I want to get about it, but the book, to some degree, is about drawing, and it's about comics, and it's about mark-making. It's less about mark-making than it is about visual storytelling it's well it's, it's processing yeah well certainly that and but but the i mean i even talk about in the comic about um using a knife to cut away from ink that you know I, something i saw in some of the ec comics i was reading at the time and and you know i mean it's sort of a way to not have to be an expert in drawing. I can just sort of talk about drawing, <laughs> which is something I'm pretty good at, but I'm not expert at drawing itself. Um, I'm hoping it'll all work, tie together in the end. The other the other part to the, the thing I'm finding compelling is um, you're really steering away from um, like a traditional narrative format. Yeah, it's very associative. Yeah. And and I kind of like that kind of... Um, kind of... Like, is it associated? Like, it's like patterns of thought of, like, bouncing around. Into right. Kind of connecting these things. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of sort of a comic I always wanted to do with something more associative like that. I never really had the subject matter to, to do it with. Um, and... Trusting a lot of first thoughts in this book too. Mm -hmm. If things were connected in my notebooks or connected the way I sort of thought about them first, I'll give them a really, really quick second review. And ninety-nine percent of the time, I just go with it and don't really. Um, you know, there are times where I see something could be folded in earlier. Or certain ideas or notions could be brought up a little, you know, at different times. But mostly, I'm, I'm uh, sort of pushing it forward visually in in direct uh, direct echo of how it came came across in my notebooks first. Now, your writing process um, is it pretty like elaborate, strict of just like how much stuff you get of the story, or is it kind of outline? and like points you need to hit well it depends I've done so many different things but I think this new book has taught me um, that the first thing I did which was Hutch Owen was a really good model because this this book and that book are very similar in how they were written and that I had a big binder I wrote like crazy for months 
And then I spent a year or something picking out the parts that were relevant or that were clear or that were powerful or visual and um, and made them and made them visible on the page. Um, I've done a lot of other different things. The Sands was written much more in sort of panel form. Um, it, it reminds me a little of um, kind of Yummy Fur era Chester Brown. What does? Sands. Oh. Like that kind of like, that's well, coarseness. That's nice. <laughs> God bless you. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're all under the spell of Chester in a great way. I mean, and I mean that by the meaning the, you know, John Lewis and some of the other Seattle people we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. I think Chester, and maybe Julie to some degree, but I think Chester is the main influence who got under all of our skins and made us realize that the, um, the potential that comics wasn't really living up to its potential yet. And, and Chester was the first person to sort of unveil that for us. Um, and, I mean, with The Sands, I tried to do a lot of improvisation, but refined improvisation. And, and I know Chester did some of that, but visually I have nothing to compare to Chester Brown at all. Just take the compliment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, now... With the the school um, last year, did you for, when you start teaching there a couple of years ago? Well, uh, at Saw. Yeah. Um, we opened our doors sort of to the community in January 2012. Our first year-long program, like bringing in people who are going to stay there for the entire year and study with us every day, that started August of that year, September. Um, so we're in the middle of our second full year of, of our, our one-year program. Now you um, were mentioning the visiting artists, and we were talking about this a little before we started. And uh, the first year you had Ron Ricci and John Porcelino, which I, I was pretty interested in, like as a pair of like kind of really um, there's something that bounces off each other really mm. well. Uh -huh. Well, the first year we just had John Porcelino, and then the okay. second the second year. We brought John back and had Ron follow. So this is our third year of of visiting artist workshops. We're only our second of doing two in a row. And this year, it's um, you have Dash there right now, and then next week, um, yep. Gabrielle oh. Mel, yeah, who also kind of bounce off each other really well. Yeah, I think so. Um, Gabrielle in a much more realistic way, and Dash in a in a formalistic way. Yeah. Yeah. And with John and Ron, it was a little more clear cut. I mean, they both, they both have a minimal visual style. Um, but Ron is so abstract. And John has an abstraction, but he, but he, but it's in the service of something very realistic. It's a, yeah, it's like an abstract minimalism. Yeah. Where Ron seems to be going further and further into like a complex, I don't know if you've seen the big pieces he's been doing lately. Um, it, it depends. I mean, he's so prolific. I'm, I might have. I mean, there's a couple pieces of his in, in, the, in the gallery show we're putting up that are fantastic that we saw that 
um, that are big, brushy things on paper. They're like giant, right? And it's just like yeah. black and white. Well, they're black on like dark, dark paper. Oh, okay. I don't know if it's the same thing. I don't know. The stuff I've so, been seeing, it's just, it's really fascinating to me. It's just, it's like Ron's boiling down his art into like this weird new form. He's always, yeah, he's always reinventing. He could have easily just stopped a long time ago evolving and, and doing, and just stayed with what he did. You know, as Skipper Bebi or, yep. but he's always changing. He's even changing his lettering. I mean, even after like his his like weird three D boxy lettering became kind of a standard in the early two thousands, like you'd even see it in a Smokey the Bear ad or a vodka ad, and it was clearly derived from Ron and came and then went through other subcultures. But he's always reinventing his lettering. He could have just been the bat guy, <laughs> <laughs> the boxy lettered guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, now you mentioned the art show that you have uh, through the month of March. Um, who are some of the folks that are going to be in it? Oh my god, it's going to be amazing. Um, well, we've got some amazing work from Ron Regi. My god, uh, I'm trying to figure out where to start. Some great pieces from Derek Ballard who lives in town here. Um, Helen Joe is sending some pieces from Frontier. I'm not actually sure what she sent. And it's actually the show's going up tomorrow, so I assume it's in somebody's hands. Um, uh, and then um, Josh Bayer sent some work. The guys at the gallery really wanted um, uh, some Ray Raymond Pettibone, and they had some contacts and contacted um, his gallery. And Josh has worked with, with Pettibone, so, um, so they got some of that. Um, some work from CF just arrived. It's really beautiful. Some things I've never seen before, and there's some pages from um, Power Masters, I think. But definitely some like comic pages, but then there are these, like, these wild, abstracted things that have this marbled, um, that have these marbled paint, uh, paper sort of sections, and then these like weird little drawings. They're really beautiful. Um, uh, Aiden Koch sent, I, I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. I think sent, you are. Yeah, okay. Sent some really, really, really beautiful stuff. Um, uh, gosh, who else? We got two paintings of Gary Panners. Nice. There, yeah. Um, uh, Pat Alicio sent some pages from uh, his big Godzilla comic that are kind of amazing. And then we have Emma Luthen, who's um, her. I didn't even know about her until like six months ago, and they're those are great. Her pages. Um, and uh, Mary Colleen O'Connell sent some work. Um, They're all very, it's very um, visually challenging cartoonists. Yes, well this is an art gallery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and they came to me and they came to me and they said we want to do, we, we would love to do, actually they didn't say we would like to, they said we're doing a show of of contemporary cartoonists a visually challenging abstract contemporary cartoonist and, and then I basically said well do you know about this one and do you know about that one they were like no <laughs> and I was like well you have to include these um, so I basically co-curated it by showing them as much as I can from the archives of you know at our school um, and I know I'm missing one or two heaven forbid I'm, it, it, this may be the only time I actually go on the internet just so I can remember <laughs> who actually lined up 
Well, the uh, Mar Mary Colleen O'Connell is what I'm, she really excites me because her stuff is just, it's really pushing your brain to think about what you're looking at. A lot of these things, a lot of these people are. Yeah, I think that's true of her. Yeah. And Emma Luzan, too. And a lot of these cartoonists. Um, oh, and Frank Santoro sent some, some stuff from Chimera. Um, what else? I don't know. There's got to be one or two others I'm forgetting. But it's going to be a I mean, we're having to shave off so much stuff. Like, Aiden Koch sent us too much stuff. And Ron, I'd love to put every piece of it up. And I hope they will, actually. I'm not making those final decisions. Are they going to um, do any little catalog or just kind of... They haven't talked about it yet, but, but I'm going to bring it up to them and maybe we could do something digital. But then, then there's the whole issue of, like, they'd have to contact the artists and see if that's something they'd be willing to do. And I don't know if they've had those conversations yet. But, um, yeah. but I'd like to see that happen. I'm Obviously, be... with Pettibone, there's a little more hoops to jump through. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It depends on the day, I think, with him. I don't know. <laughs> I... I... Um, if I remember another artist that's in that show, but that's, yeah, that opens tomorrow. It's going to be really amazing. And, um, I think we're each mutually thankful, me and the gallery owners for, for crossing each other's paths. Cause I never would have put this show together. I don't really want to run a gallery and I can't do all that logistics of getting things insured and sent and hung and stuff like that. And they couldn't have put this show together without, without me. And for some reason they wanted to. <laughs> Um, but I mean, but with good reason. I mean, there's so much great stuff happening in comics right now, and there's so much visually happening in comics that um, that I, I actually it makes total sense that that they would want to direct their energy towards or their their attention towards um, the comic scene right now. It's a really, really, really vibrant place right now. So good for them. Now uh, you're also mentioning you're going to have uh, Carol Tyler come and visit. She's coming April. for yeah, yeah. She's coming for the. University of Florida, one reason that Gainesville was a good place to put Saw was uh, the University of Florida holds an annual comics conference. It's um, it's academic conference, and people come and read papers and debate things and probably throw popcorn at each other and other things. I don't know what they do. Um, and they always bring down some artists to, to do some workshops and to um, hold court a little bit. And uh, this year's theme is about trauma and uh, I told them they should bring down Carol and they are bringing down Carol and uh, she's gonna I think she'll probably come talk at Saw on April 3rd, it's a Friday and then and then the next two days um, be a part of the conference which is, you know, 13 blocks away on campus um, it's a great, yeah, it's a great sort of synergy and Carol, I so much respect for her, I'm mm -hmm. just honored even in the same city as her for a couple of days You'll Never Know is really one of the those comics recently that really pushed forward a lot of notions, um, especially about how to do autobio and yeah, how, to, you know, how to tell, not just autobio, but how to tell people's stories. Yeah, and you know, it, it, took, me to, it took me to read those to go back to um, Late Bloomer mm -hmm. and realize that she's been laying down that groundwork for a long time and none of this is new and um, and she's just been slowly and in, in, in such a dedicated way creating this this unique vision of comics that is so accessible and so original at the same time um, 
Yeah, I just think she's such a great talent. Now the something I completely forgot to, to talk about is the uh, micro grants you're doing um, through there. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, t we were talking about the Xerox and the role that they played in. Who do you mention? Like Lutz, Lasky, yourself, uh, Megan, Megan Kelso. Um, Megan Sturm. Um, we we could probably list off about you know untold Jonko. amounts um, of amazing cartoonists. Leela Carmen. Um, there we go. Um, <laughs> and would, yeah, and it stopped. They've stopped doing it. Um, citing uh, Kickstarter as a, as a new viable option, which I find kind of personally, even though doing a Kickstarter right now to be kind of problematic, because Kickstarter is kind of a popularity contest. Right, and you know they 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 cited the internet as a distribution model and Kickstarter as a funding model, as a, if I remember correctly, as a reason to stop the grant. It really broke my heart, um, mm -hmm. because what it and you write about Kickstarter, right? I mean, as a popularity contest, and the web certainly your work is out there. Um, but there was this there was this um, nod of approval from you know the prior generations or something that the Zarek gave you that doesn't come from the, the sort of like the peer review that the web often is and that Kickstarter is. Um, and and it was also not about your numbers, right? And it wasn't about this is going to sell well or you've gotten that many people to go to your Tumblr or whatever. It was just about some people saying, "Yeah, this is this is quality." Mm -hmm. um, and I think about Tom, I, like you know Tom Galambos is a great example who got a uh, um, Zarek, and he's this utterly astounding talent. He's very quiet. He's never going to tumble or tweet or anything and um, you know and nobody knows who he is but he deserved every dime of that grant that he got because he's he's doing great work or you know and and so it I the Zarek doing what it's what it did I mean or, or abandoning what it did left the quieter people sort of out you know out to see I think you know if you're not able able to promote enough to get that Kickstarter funded or promote enough or be hip enough to get that your web page seen a bunch then I'm not it's it's tough and, and so I, I just wanted to I just was lying in bed one day and I just was like really frustrated and I, I said I just wish we could just give a little bit of money to people who are quietly plugging away at something and and just say it's good and and here's not much money but but we appreciate what you're trying to do and go for it and then the next day like the, the next day after lying in bed like that I there um, a, a sizable enough grant came in through our or, or donation came in to saw and um, and I called out that person I said listen I just it, if it's okay with you I just want to use this money for this reason because I was lying in bed last night, <laughs> and I wanted to do this, and, and, and yeah, and they said yeah. So. And you've given out two of them so far, three of them? Uh, isn't that funny? I don't know. Um, 
Uh, I think we've given out three sets of two. Um, there were, Leela thinks so. It was just Rolfson and Julia Grafor and then Andrew White and Alabaster and Asher Craw and I'm forgetting one other person. And Glennis Fox. So I guess we've given out six, three rounds of two. And, which, the, and, and we've got another one coming up. And the, the deadline will probably um, be April 15th on that one. And these are basically small amounts that cover printing costs on a mini comic. Or... I don't. Whatever they want to do with it is fine with me. <laughs> $250. And, you know, and I'm such a terrible, um, you know, I'm not a good business person. And, and since I've started that grant, you know, Santoro started doing something, and um, and uh, CCS started doing something, and Cake is start is talking about doing something, and all those people are probably going to be better at it than I am. And I know like Frank managed to get like Big Planet Comics to donate some comics and maybe some art supply store to art. I I I'm not clever or social enough to figure that out. I just could scrounge up two hundred fifty dollars and I gave it away. I would much rather do what they're doing and actually have more resources and, and a couple more options maybe. Well, it's, I mean, uh, I'm just terrible at that stuff. It's, it, it's so financially, it's such a tough time right now. Yeah. Um, like whatever helps for when you're trying to make a comic, like if that covers your printing costs, that covers your printing costs. You know, right. Cover, you know, envelopes, send it out to tastemakers, sure. send it out to tastemakers. Like, Okay, well, I'll be, I'll be, okay. I'm proud of what we're doing then. I <laughs> know, <laughs> oh, it's like, I do know people, um, and even with myself, seeing some of the stuff that comes from Jerks, I'm like, is this stuff that really is challenging at all? And uh, there's part of me that's like, I kind of see these sources of money, like chances of, to, to support work that wouldn't get support otherwise. That's doing something different, doing something challenging. Uh -huh. Um pushing comics forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just really want to support anybody serious and dedicated and, and original. Mm -hmm. Especially original. Well, thank you, Tom, for taking the time to chat with me this, uh, this fine evening. Sure. Uh, reminder, folks, I've been talking to Tom Hart, uh, who is the Founder, co-founder, should I say co-founder? Founder of the Sequential Artist Workshop. And uh, Hutch Owen and his uh, current book, Rosalie Lightning, um, which you can get uh, the first three volumes from John Porcelino's Fit and a Half and um, Box Brown's Retrofit. And maybe Wow Cool? Maybe I'm not sure. The there aren't, there aren't copies floating around still. You're not printing more, though, are you, since there's a book coming out? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. I'm tumbling, if that's the verb. <laughs> Leela's laughing over there. Um, you know, the process is sort of important to me to sort of document it a little bit, so that's on Tumblr. Um, but the book itself, yeah, will come out in its full form, 2015. Okay. I'll, I'll post a link to the, to the Tumblr or whatever it is the kids yeah. that call it nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you uh, so much, Tom. Thanks. No, Robin, this has been a big pleasure. Thank you very much.